morning here in this room and for those of you online. Uh, we have been working through a series called Life and Doctrine the last couple mornings, and we'll continue to do so until the end of this month before we kind of transition into a summer series that's uh, looking forward to, to get a, getting to that. But before we do, we want to continue on in this particular conversation, and we want to highlight this verse that we have been working through the last several weeks, and it kind of always begins here. And this is where uh, a much older Paul, who is um, almost dead, uh, lived his life now for the goodness and glory of God, has made several missionary trips, has been through every up and down, uh, and he's speaking into a very young man's life named Timothy. And they have a unique relationship, it's incredibly close, and some would even describe the relationship as like a a father and son type dynamic. And Paul says to Timothy, he says, Timothy, watch your, watch your life and doctrine closely. Watch these things closely. And he goes on and says, if you pay attention to this, it will save yourself, but not only yourself, but also the ones who are listening to your hearers. And this has been our dialogue over the last couple mornings, and we've been looking at different doctrines in the hopes that they would shape our life. I know all kinds of people who say one thing, and yet they live a completely different life. And as Christ followers, it is incumbent upon us that our beliefs, the things that are essential to faith, actually do shape our life in the day-to-day moments of our spaces. We have looked at three different doctrines, or three core doctrines thus far. The first one in week one, we had spent some time talking about the doctrine of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, three of them, the Trinity. And, and more importantly than just being articulate the right way in which they function together, but more importantly, it's that space of we are, we are invited into this by Jesus in John 17 through this high priestly prayer moment where he prays over his disciples then and his disciples now that we would be one with the Father the way Jesus the Son is one with the Father and that we would be one with one another in that same way. And when you get a good look at God, Father, Son, and Spirit, there's this unique dynamic inside of them where there's this deference for one another. There's a celebration of the other. And it's this beautiful space that we as Christ followers are instructed to live in. And when you get into Paul's language of bear with one another, love one another, serve one another, it all is born out of his understanding of who God is in this particular relationship. That was week one. And then week two, we had talked about the Word of God, both the written and living. And we landed that morning talking about the importance of two particular spiritual disciplines where we read our Bibles and we pray every day. This old song from when I was a kid, a song, Winston, that people actually enjoy from when I was a kid in Sunday school. <laughs> but these are these, this conversation that we read and pray every day. And when we read God's Word, the living Word of God, the Spirit that's alive in us, begins to shape us as we go forward. And one of the passages that we stumbled into that morning was this one from Isaiah where it reads, it's not on the screen, but it's this incredible verse that says, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way. And so we walk in it. It is the living word, the written word of God that shapes our way as we walk in it. It's this word that God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path and we walk in it day by day. Last week, we spent some time talking through the doctrine of creation, where God is the one who has spoken all things from nothing. And again, larger than just arguing for the fact that God is the creator, 
It means that there is a design that the Creator had in mind. And as a Christ follower, we want to work hard and put a lot of effort into discovering what is God's design for our lives. And when we discover what that design is, that we would walk in that well, and we had landed talking about money and how God had a particular design in mind, and how Christ followers were called to live in that space for God's goodness and glory, yes, but also for freedom and life for us as followers. Watch your life and doctrine closely. What we say we believe ought to be shaping our lives every single day. Here's another example to get us started. Um, If you believe that God created the world and that woven into God's creation, that we as humans, that we were created to care for the garden, then our interaction with the garden is going to be one of concern, care, and stewardship. If you don't think that God created the world and that there is no such thing as God's design, then we're not going to care much for God's care and concern and stewardship of the physical world in which we live. It's so curious that it's often Christ followers that have little regard for the physical world that God has made. And yet it's here in Genesis 1 and 2 where God places Adam and Eve in the garden and says, Now I want you to tend this. I want you to care for this. I want you to work the ground. And so it begins to shape our lives as we go forward. At some point, Christians, and I use that term loosely, at some point, Christians have to begin connecting the dots that our actions flow from the things that we believe. And if our actions and words don't line up with what we say we believe, it's time to examine whether or not we actually believe them. I will often say to people, I don't, I don't care what you say, I'm more interested in what you do because what you do actually speaks to what you actually hold to and what you believe. This series is again working through these essential doctrines, these essential beliefs that have been shaping Christian thinking for now 2,000 years. And this morning, we're going to look at another core doctrine, a doctrine called the Fall. And to set the stage properly for this doctrine, we have to go back and look at the doctrine of creation because they're woven together in a beautiful, beautiful way. God is the one who creates everything from nothing. And after a period of seven days, as He brings forth life in all of its wonder and beauty, He takes Adam and Eve, kind of the gemstone of His creation, and He places them in the garden and says, I want you to take care of this. I want you to steward all that I have made. And what's so curious is that I've grown up in church and I've heard the creation story and I have been taught to focus all of my attention on, well, what did God make on day one? And what did He make on day two? And what did He make on day three? As though that's the test that ultimately matters for me. Knowing what He created on day three has no impact on my life today at all. But when I read the creation story through this kind of paradigm of relationships, It shapes my life in every way. God, through the creation story, unpacks and reveals what this world was supposed to look like. Adam and Eve in the garden were there, created by God and for God, and walked in a living relationship with Him. Adam and Eve, they, as a husband and wife, their marriage was void of conflict, void of animosity. Can you imagine what that world would be like? that we would get up in the morning and there wouldn't be any hostility between a husband and wife in any way. 
You go into this other layer where Adam and Eve were created to care for the created world. They were to live in a right relationship with the physical things that God has made around them. That Adam and Eve were created to live in a right relationship with themselves. That they understood deeply who they belonged to, who made them, who loved them. That they were deeply comfortable in their own skin. That they would look in the mirror and to use the text of Scripture, um, and they were naked and they felt no shame. I don't know about you, but there's lots of times when you look in the reflection of a mirror and you're like, ah, and we struggle with what's in the reflection and there's guilt and there's shame and there's things that we walk in every single day. God, after looking out over His created world and seeing this incredible blueprint of how it's supposed to function, He says, this is good. This is really good. And He says to Adam and Eve, and this is the incredible passage from Genesis 2, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. I want to stop and unpack here for a moment. Because this whole phrase, you will certainly die, we skim over. We don't do the necessary work to unpack the weight and fullness of this moment. If you eat from this one tree, Adam and Eve, you're going to ultimately what's called disobey me. And something's going to happen in the world that I have made. Something is going to unravel very, very quickly. If you decide to do life your way, if you decide to be your own king, if you decide to be your own queen, if you want to do this a way that's foreign from what I have in mind for you, you will certainly die. Something will enter the world that was never supposed to be here. Something will enter the world that will ruin all of the relationship that we've come to know. The relationship with God. You will be uncomfortable with the idea and presence of God. You will begin fighting with your spouse and you will begin to destroy the relationships that are closest to you. You will view the world as though it's something to exploit and something to take from. And you will no longer be comfortable with who you are in your own skin. And you will struggle with all kinds of things. You will most certainly die. This phrase, certainly die, is where the conversation of sin and death ultimately are born. Another phrase that the Scripture uses is a phrase called the curse. And it corrupts the whole world. And it will twist everything going forward. And when you look across our world, it does shape every particular landscape. Every sickness you experience. It's grassroots level is born from the curse. Every stillborn that is born. Every miscarriage people experience. Every social media war that we engage in. Every genetic mutation we have. Every broken marriage that is present. Every species that's now extinct. Every mental health issue that we walk in. Every global pandemic. Every desire to run away from God. Every hostility between human beings. Every murder, every abuse, every harassment case. Every 97-year-old who falls asleep and they don't wake up. Every single one of these is an outworking of what it means when God says, you will most certainly die. All of us in our life experience the 101 faces of this phrase, you will most certainly die. 
Police officers are often at the front edge of this reality every day of their work. They see the curse at work in the world in the most sinister of ways. Doctors and paramedics and nurses work, they, they give their lives to working in spaces where they're trying to restore the human body back from all the outworkings that the curse has on their life. School teachers see the fragmented lives of students every single day, again, seeing the outworking of the curse where kids are coming from homes where there's not enough food, where kids are coming from homes where parents don't ultimately value or care for them. They see the outworkings of the curse every single day. Pastors are no different. We live in this space with you all the time. We sit in your living rooms. We stand beside you at gravesides. We pray with you as your marriages come undone. We watch the weight of these things break people in significant ways. We as a people, we see the impact of you will most certainly die. We see it in every corner of this world and of our lives. God says to them, if you eat of this tree, everything that I have designed for you, everything that I had hoped for you, everything that I intended for you in your life, you will lose it all. It will all come undone. Genesis 3, we read this. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And if you keep on reading, it would say, and they realized they were naked and they felt shame and they run to cover their bodies. This is the moment, this is the fall, this is where creation fell away from all that God had in mind. And it ruined and continues to ruin and corrupt all that God had created for you and I to experience and walk in. This curse, this sin and death, this most, you will certainly die, this conversation that's throughout the text of Scripture, it is not some nebulous ethereal idea or concept. The fall, the curse, it's visible and concrete. And we walk in it every single day of our lives. Paul speaks to the larger structure of it in Ephesians 6 where he talks of the ruler of this dark world. Again in Romans 7, he moves away from the large structural idea of sin and death and he talks about how it's corrupted the human soul. Where he describes it as though there's a law of sin that's at work in the human heart. The curse, this sin and death, this idea, this phrase of you will most certainly die, it's very much alive and well in the world and it's very much alive and well in the human heart. It's what compels a human to apply for the CERB benefit when they don't need it. Free money? I don't need it, but I'm going to apply for it anyway. That's called the sin at work in your heart. Taking advantage of something that's not intended for you, but because you're greedy, you will take advantage of this. It's what's at work in large corporations or powerful nations as they exploit the earth or other people groups. It's what, behind, it's what stands behind every mental health issue that we walk in. It manifests itself in depression and anxiety and other eating disorders and so on and so forth. It's the very thing that convinces someone that they're not worth anything. Where we begin to, be, begin to believe lies about ourselves that are not true from God's perspective. It creates the confusion in the human heart where they will run away from God and turn to crystals or unicorns or other forms of spirituality in the hope that they would find meaning there. 
We run away from the very one who offers life to find life in other things. This ties back into our opening example. Sin and death, this curse, it's at the root cause of all of the physical problems that our world is experiencing. Every environmental issue that you could speak to, it's grounded in the curse. Either from our behavior that hurts the earth or from just the deterioration of the world at large because sin and death are present. It's so weird to me that it's often Christian conservatives being the loud voice that pushes back to the conversation of the environment and issues that are connected to it. And it's that same person that I would love to go spend an hour on their lawn with Javex and say, listen, if my activity can't harm when your lawn's dead tomorrow, you shouldn't be upset. Like our behavior as Christ followers inside the context of the garden matters. God has created us to care for it with great concern to steward the world that we live in. The fall, this is the moment where Adam and Eve eat and sin and death enter the world and God's good and beautiful creation, it all comes undone. This is where sin is born ultimately. And if I can, I'd love to speak to this word sin for a moment because we've made this word to mean something far more complex and, and weirder than it is. And here's the definition that's on the screen. Sin simply means, by definition, to miss the mark. Sin is where we've missed the mark. And whether you believe in God or not, we should all be able to agree that sin is a very real thing. That you and I miss the mark and we see how people miss the mark every single day. When a mom and dad are waiting and anxiously for this child to be born and a miscarriage happens, that's missing the mark. This isn't what we had hoped for. When a husband and wife and their marriage comes undone, that's missing the mark. I've married a lot of people in my life. And I've never stood before God in this church or on a beach or the many different places. And that man and that woman said, ah, five years. Like, I've never had that conversation. It's always till death do us part. And yet life unfolds. Sin and death are at work. And the very person that we loved to be around and we could never get enough of is a person now that I can't stand to be around. Whether you are a Christ follower or not, something has missed the mark here. When someone steals from you or you steal from someone, we've missed the mark. I remember the first time I stole anything. I was four. I was at Canadian Tire. There was a life jacket on the ground. I thought it was free. Because normally life jackets are, in the, are up on the shelf. I'm like, oh, in the aisle, that means free. That's, my, that's how my headspace works. I get home and I took off my jacket and my mom's like, where'd you get the life jacket? I'm like, Canadian Tire. So we go back down to Canadian Tire. And my mom, you know, you're going to tell the employer that you stole from them. I felt the sting of missing the mark in this moment. And I've never stolen anything again. Sin. It's simply to miss the mark. And we miss the mark all the time in our lives. God has, God had a design. This sin and death, the curse, it compels us to miss the mark all the time. And when we do, it grieves the heart of God. It brings sorrow to the heart of God. It frustrates the heart of God. It angers the heart of God. 
because this isn't what he had in mind. And here's the bad news. There is nothing that I can do on my own to reverse or stop the curse from happening in my life. There's nothing that I can do on my own to reverse the outworking of this real entity in my life. Paul, he says it this way, it's in Romans 7, and I've taken out the heart of the passage, it's not the whole of it, but, but he says this, and everyone in this room, you should be able to, to grasp what he's saying. He says this, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Paul is describing this law of sin that's at work in him. He's describing this this entity that is the very cause of him missing the mark. And it's this dynamic of when we live our lives, everyone in this room, and I suspect listening online, there are real moments of, why did I do that again? I don't want to do that. I don't want to say that again. I don't want to behave in that pattern anymore. And it haunts us because we know what we want to do and we find ourselves lacking to move our lives in the direction that we want to do and find ourselves lamenting over the fact that here we are again doing the same thing that I've always done. And Paul goes on and says, what a wretched man am I who can save me from this dilemma? I'll describe for you what this looks like in our home. I get up sometimes early in the morning and I'll go and spend time kind of by the window looking in our backyard over a field where I'll read and pray. And the day's starting great. And then our dog gets up. And I have this good that's at work in me, but I find evil is right there present with me. And then my children will get up. Where's my hairbrush? I don't, I don't know. I don't need one. <laughs> and the day unfolds. And everywhere I go, there's this constant dynamic of, I want to do this, but I'm doing this. I want to do good, but evil is right there present with me. Every step of my life, every single day. And it's true of your life, and it's true of this world around us, and it helps us understand the world in which we live when we understand the implications of this doctrine called the fall. There are two implications that I want to finish with this morning. The first implication of the doctrine of the fall in my life as a Christ follower is this, and this ought to be yours as well. It increases my daily reliance on Jesus Christ. As a Christ follower, it increases my daily reliance on Jesus Christ. I understand and believe wholeheartedly that there is a law of sin at work in me. And understanding that dynamic, I turn to the one who can actually help me navigate through this tension and struggle in my daily life. So that when Murray does something that he's not supposed to do inside the house, evil is right there with me, compelling me to say and do and act in a way that will compel me to say sorry later. So I spend more time and I put a lot of effort into reading and praying and reading and praying and talking with others about this dynamic and finding the help that I need in the moments that I need it in and through Christ Himself. When I understand and I believe wholeheartedly that this is true of my life and yours, 
It is the very thing that compels me to put a lot of effort into my walk with Christ where I would daily rely on Him. We sing a song that speaks of how every hour I need the Lord. That's not just a nice lyric because it's singable. It's a nice lyric because it's true and it's right. If we had a video camera on you in your life every day, man, Romans 7 would be on full display. And understanding this and believing this is the very thing that compels me to put a lot of effort into my reading and praying of the written Word so that the living Word of God might be active in my life to help in the moments that I need help. Knowing the fall is real, it, it shapes everything about my daily life. And it increases my reliance on the living King on the Savior who has done something significant to rescue and restore this thing, me, that is broken and fallen. The other thing is this. It increases my compassion towards others. And hear this the right way. Um, when, when, when you live your life and you go sideways, it ought to, in the Christ follower, increase compassion towards the one whose life has gone sideways. Because I know what's at work in you. I know there is a, a power at work in you that you don't like, and it compels us to go sideways sometimes. So when you run into a waiter at a store, and they're just belligerent, as a Christ follower, I understand what's at work in their life. When I'm dealing with someone on the phone, when I walk with our church family, I understand what's at work in your life. And it increases my compassion toward you because I understand that there are forces at play that you don't like, that you can't control, and so my love will increase for you over and over again in our home life. I understand what's at work in the, the, the life of my wife. My wife understands what's at work in the life of her husband. I understand what's at work in my kids. And here, parents, this is, this is a real moment that you should strive for and look for. When your kids behave in a way that you know it's outside of the design that you've created for your home, and you say, well, why did you do that? And they'll say, honestly, I don't know. This is your moment to unpack for them in the clearest of terms, well, let me tell you what's at work in you. That you can't explain why. You did the thing that you know that you shouldn't do. There's something at work inside your little heart, and don't tell them that their hearts are pure and perfect because it's, it's the opposite. Tell them that something is fundamentally wrong with it, and they're in need of a Savior. And as a Christ-following Father, we try to live this out because I'm in need of that too. And together we will walk in life relying on Christ, the one who has done something significant to save us from this dilemma. I understand and believe wholeheartedly that the fall is real. And it helps me understand the world in which, my, in which we live. It helps me understand the way that I interact with my wife and with my children. It helps me pastor you well. It helps me understand all of these different dynamics and why Christ matters so much to us. I'm going to invite Winston and team back and they're going to lead us in a song in a moment. And as they do, 
I would love for you to find the communion cup that's on your table and take a moment and like deconstruct it. It takes a moment, I know, uh, but take a moment and kind of pull that apart. And, and I forgot mine. I'm going to go, go grab one from this table here. By 2024, I'm sure we'll have this down pat. A few moments ago, Winston had us read a verse together. That read, For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. When I understand the weight and the size and the gravity of the doctrine of the fall, when I understand that God out of love moved to His and towards His creation because we were helpless to solve this problem on our own. That Christ in His body absorbs into Himself all of the sin, all of our missing of the marks. That He offers forgiveness. That He offers restoration. That we might walk with the Father again because of Christ. That we might be redefined in our earthly relationships with others, that we might view the world as though, as though we're caretakers of this world, that I would grow in this comfortability in my own skin, that I know that I belong to Christ, I know that I have been uniquely and wonderfully made, I know that He has died for me, I know that He has restored me. When I understand the doctrine of the fall and this verse that Winston had us read a moment ago, my love for Christ increases all the more. Because the curse is all around us. And it shapes so many different dynamics of our life. And it's this moment of, of raising high the great name of Jesus Christ for what He has done for us. That He's created a way out of the implications of the fall while we live our life here on this earth. That I get to walk with my Creator again. That He has given me counsel through His Word, both living and written. That I understand the dynamics that shape this world. And it all points to and leads to how much we ought to live and celebrate for the goodness of Jesus Christ. It is through His life, it is through His death, it's through His resurrection where He begins to undo the antidote, if you will. For the curse is found in Christ Himself. So this morning, I'd invite you to eat. I'd invite you to drink and celebrate the beautiful name of Christ and all that He's done for us.